So if you haven't been with us for a while, we want to welcome you here. This is actually a really great morning here at Bridges because we've been going through the book of Revelation, which has this great promise that God will pour out his blessing if we read it and heed it. And so we've been trying to soak it all in. And there's a lot of just, you know, some hard stuff in this book. And now it turns a corner into some really incredibly good news. So I want to invite you to turn your Bible open to Revelation chapter 21. If you don't have it, then find one around you. There's some provided for you. If you don't have a Bible, man, get that free Bible app on your phone so you can carry around your Bible all the time. And I just have to say that this news that we get a whiff of here in Revelation 21 is the greatest news imaginable. Here it is that God has a future in store for his children beyond our wildest dreams, beyond all that you could imagine, beyond your capacity to fully appreciate, but we can start dreaming about it now. And that's part of the reason why God gave us this news. And how like our our Lord to save the best for last, right? And this is what we're going to get here after all the stuff we've been working through in Revelation we're going to discover that God's eternity so far exceeds human imagination that it is both encouraging and exciting. So as I've been thinking it through um, Revelation 21, one thing that really God, I think, has been striking in my heart is this, that when men think about their future and create religions or worldviews, they come up with all kinds of different things about what eternity is going to actually be like. Some believe there's nothing that as soon as you die, you're, you're done. That's just it. Some people look forward to being at one with whatever, you know, um, frogs and snails and dirt. And okay, that's their future hope. Some believe that uh, the greatest thing to expect in our future is to take care of a harem for eternity. Some, you know, there's a long cycle of what people think of for eternity. And I'm here, hopefully, to help you understand that what God has for his children, those who place their faith in him, is so far exceeding what man can conceive of that it's compelling for us to turn to. It's so inviting what God has for his kids. So much better, infinitely better. I want you to think for a second about um, if you had like endless resources and you could go to a place where you would get the best view imaginable, where would you go to? Where would you go that you like, you just wish you could go to just to see the vista, okay? And take that thought and turn around to somebody that's sitting around you and And just share it with them. Where would you go if you could go anywhere and just see the greatest view, something that you'd really like to see? Go ahead. Take a second. It's interactive. Lance, turn around. Talk to somebody around you, okay? You guys, there you go. Don't be shy. Maybe you'll meet someone new here. Take a risk. Now, wherever it was, Whatever view that you might have anticipated or you look forward to, I have to tell you that Revelation 21 gives a picture that so far exceeds what you've just described. Because, of course, God has in this infinite creativity something better than we imagine. 
And it's this really sweet hint of it here in Revelation 21, verse 1, begins this way. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, before you start panicking, if you're a surfer or a fisherman or a kayaker that loves the ocean, it's going to get good, okay? It's actually going to be better than what you imagine. It begins this way. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we're told this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief that will surprise us. The heavens will disappear with a roar. It's talking about the cosmos. Have an end as we know it. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. There's an end to the present system as we know it. And that end, as we read in 2 Peter 3, of the old heavens and earth, leaves us hanging. Okay, but then, then what? If that's God's plan, that doesn't seem so good. Except the story of Revelation is he's going to make all things new, and he gets better than what we currently have. We know today in the present universe, in its farthest reaches, farther than the new Hubble telescope can show us, that all of it is governed by certain scientific laws, laws of nature, at least as we understand them. And one of them is the second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy, right? That, that everything that we see in the universe is decaying. It's, it's losing energy. And apparently, God has something that's perfect and flawless and eternal in mind. And that second law of thermodynamics helps us understand currently that all is not well with the cosmos and with our world, with our earth presently. That God has something even different in store for us, better in store for us. I believe that science declares the glory of God. And it shows us that he's got something better for us Something stunningly beautiful in its unity and stability and symmetry and beauty that he has for his children. And it'll all be new and right and whole without decay or chaos or imperfection. Isn't that good? It's, it's all going to be new. It's all going to be right. It's not going to be twisted. It's all going to be whole. On this new earth of God's design, there will no longer be any seed, we're told, and we don't know why. We could take some guesses, I suppose. I believe that, you know, we know that there's going to be fresh water there. The river of life is there. We'll find out next week. And so perhaps there's freshwater surfing. Don't panic about that. All I know is that as the sea exists presently, that that's not going to be part of the picture. And perhaps it's because um, the sea currently has some different functions for us. It takes care of the filter for all the waste and pollution and garbage in our world. But in that new world, new earth and new heavens, there is none of that that exists. There's no longer any need. And verse 2 says, And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's this image, once again, the, the bride's image that he uses before in the book of Revelation to help us see his picture of us. Here we see in God's design for our future, there's this beautiful city stunning in its beauty. Now, here's the deal. I, you know, if I would picture heaven, actually the new heaven and new earth, I would go for something country. I, I like the woods. 
And, um, and I also like the beach. I, I just like, I like to be out, outdoors. So I would picture that, a city. Who, who would picture a city? But God in his infinite creativity is going to unveil something that is very cool. And the heart of what he communicates in this verse is that our home is going to be pure. That's the image of a bride. And it's going to be completely holy. That is, the city is going to be pure in every way, not scarred by crime or pollution or greed or abuse or corruption of any kind. It'll be set apart by people living in right relationship with each other and with the Lord. Think about that for a moment, right? How sweet would that be if everybody in your neighborhood loved each other? If, if you had great relationships with each other. This is a place of holiness and health. And you know, the, the thing that's ugly about the city is all this, the junk in it, the pollution, the, the broken relationships, even terrorism. But in this world that God is going to create, recreate, there's none of that that's going to exist. And I, I think because we know from Scripture that it's filled with people from every ethnos, every people group, that the food is going to be killer. I just think it's going to be great. That's just the Ron King, yeah, whatever. And, and I heard verse 3 says, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things passed away. Far greater than just the location part of this new city is that God is present, right? He's, he's fully there with us. He's going to make his home with us there. It's who's inside that really matters in this place, and God is fully present there. We call this place, this church, on occasion, the house of the Lord. But it's just an imitation of what's going, just a shadow of what's going to be, that, that God is present. Sometimes when we're gathered together and worship, we sense, oh, wow, wasn't it great to be there because we sense that God was present? But there we're going to know it face to face, heaven says. We're going to experience an intimate relationship, and God is going to be present there, which means there's going to be all kinds of discovery of us getting to know God better, all kinds of adventure, because all adventure is birthed in the creativity of God it's going to be a great place. Heaven, someone has well said, is a place of no more. No more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more evil, no more tears. Think of that for a second. Um, this last week, I was thinking about all the people in our fellowship who have experienced currently and presently loss. We have... Um, Several families who have lost a family member who is near and dear to them. I was at the hospital last week with a, with a young lady who is, um, was struggling with an illness, and she died at Washington Hospital. Um, I know that many of you have been in the midst of struggling with family members who are suffering. Um, one of our own elders just got word about their cancer all over their body, and I know um, there are a lot of us that, that cry. They're in pain over the suffering. So in this great future God has for us, it's 
not marred by that kind of suffering from the consequences of separation from God or pain or physical entropy. None of it is going to affect us in this new home that he has for us. Can I hear a praise God for that? That's, that's really good news, isn't it? Adrian Rogers um, once said, there are only two places where there's no hope. One is in hell because when you go there, you've lost hope. And one is in heaven because when you're in heaven, you don't need hope. I like that. You don't need hope there because God is fully present. And all of your hope, your greatest expectations and aspirations, the ones that are deepest in your soul, they're all met by God and exceeded by him. Yeah, I agree, Rick. And verse 5 says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. That's the message of Revelation, right? From beginning to end, God is making things new. Also, he said, Write this down. Okay, just don't miss it. He's saying, Write it down. For these words are trustworthy. I can bank on them. And they're true. They're accurate. And he said to me, It is done. On the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. That phrase, it is done. What does it remind you of? Yeah, for those of you who know your, um, your scriptures, you know that Jesus, when he was on the cross, giving his own life for us, he was accomplishing a work that God had sent, the Father had sent him to do, to give his own life for Wayne, so that Wayne might have life, might have confidence, that when his ticker gives out, He's got life in Jesus, and God has a future in store for him. That, that I don't have to fear for my future, but I know I have confidence that God has my future in his hands. Well, that work, when Jesus said it's finished on the cross, he was speaking in present tense that he had accomplished what God had set him to do. He'd been faithful. He'd lived a life without sin, and he died on the cross for me and for you so that we might have life. But scripture teaches us that salvation is a past tense. When I first come to faith in Christ and place my face there, I am rescued. I'm saved. Past tense. And scripture also says I'm being saved. As I live out the life God has called me to, my salvation is being worked out in me. And one day in the future, it'll be finished. I'll be complete. God will complete the work of salvation. And that happens here in Revelation chapter 21. When we hear that phrase, it is done. Redemption is complete. It's a finished work of God when the redeemed are safely home in glory and everything that God wants is done. His rule is established for all time. Sin and its consequences are abolished and no thing is left incomplete. It's all done. It's finished. This is what we hope for and yearn for. To the thirsty, second half of verse 6, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Nothing you did earned this, is what he's saying. We didn't in any way deserve heaven. Not one stinking one of us. Without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. How do we, how do we conquer? We conquer in Christ through his strength. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Generic term, ladies, including you. 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, or that word vile, as for murders, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's how itself is talking about. Now, wait a second. That, that verse actually is kind of sobering, isn't it? Because I realize that I'm, by all rights, deserving to be in that second list. Right? Anybody here never lie? Paul? Yeah? No? Every one of us? No, Tony. <laughs> right. Every one of us here should be in that second list. But by the grace of God, we're not in that second list. Why? It's because those who are thirsty for God, it says. Those who've turned to Jesus to quench their thirst, not other things. The point is that nothing on earth satisfies me. It wasn't intended to satisfy the depth of my soul's not wealth or fame or pleasures or a new video game or whatever, right? None of that really meets the satisfaction, the deepest within me. It's, it's only a thirst for God and relationship with him that he will give me satisfaction, which drives me to ask a question of you this morning that's a challenging question I want kind of rattling around in your brains and souls this week, and it's this. Do you hunger, do you thirst for God or lesser things? It's a great question to be asking ourselves um, I've got this wish list. Your kids have a wish list right, for Christmas. Do you thirst for the Lord God above all things or for lesser things? Uh, according to the text, there's some reasons or attitudes why those who, who miss it, miss it. Don't get the thirst for God and don't get their name written in the book of life. First, there's a group that's, that's really described as the cowardly or the cowards. It's talking about those who fear taking on the yoke of Christ, who fear confessing Jesus, who are unwilling to be unpopular or counterculture for a while right now on earth. And they hesitate and falter and turn away the offer of life because they're just afraid of it. You have friends and family members perhaps who are part of that category who choose not to follow Christ, and really the reason is not what they're saying, it's because they're afraid of it. And they, they, they have a hard time choosing Christ because they think they're going to have to give stuff up, which is true, but it's only the lesser things. And then there are the unbelieving, that category of people that choose to disbelieve the truth. Those who know it's true, but don't want it and refuse the evidence. And they couch that in intellectual reasons or cultural excuses. But Romans tells us that in our hearts, every person knows that God exists and that he's written his moral law on your heart. So man, it says, mankind is without excuse before God. You can say you disbelieve, but God's written that in the depths of every person's heart. He's given them evidence for his existence and for them to turn to him. And then there's a third category. It's listed with a lot of different behaviors. These are the vile, those bent on pursuing their desires over God's. And it's a progressive thing that happens. You feed your mind and your heart with bad company or visual stuff or events in your life, 
and your attitudes and your actions become more and more foul-minded, and, and these things lead us away from the Lord God and what he has in store for us. So he's giving us this option there, people who thirst for God above all things, and people who make excuses and don't turn to God. Don't be part of that because that doesn't lead you to rescue. It leads to hell itself. But here I've got this great thing in store for you, all of you who hunger for God. And here it is. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So this, this angel who had to give the really bad, really, really bad news gets to give the really good news, which is good, right? And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, gave me this great view and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west. Yeah, do the math. Three, three gates, right? And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So what's, what's going on with this great city that comes down? First, it's got these interesting attributes. The first of, of which, of course, is that it just sparkles like crazy because it's reflecting the glory of God and it, it captures John because it's the thing that dominates. Its beauty is just so incredible. And then on it is interesting. On its gates are written the 12 names of the tribes of Israel or those patriarchs. And then on the foundations are written the 12 names of the apostles. And you wonder, what in the world is that all about? And it doesn't really explain it. Here's what I know. The new heaven and new earth declare the glory of God, not any people, right? They didn't earn that. And I don't think the names are about their fame. It's about the fame of Jesus, I think really it's about a memorial being set up to declare the story of God through the ages as he's related to mankind and specifically about his covenant love that he's had for us. I think that's what it's marking. Those names tell the story of the covenant love of God through the ages in both testaments. God's plan to redeem a people for himself. Children brought into a relationship with him for the glory of God in all of history. And so when you see the names, you're reminded about the great story of God. And you start singing, this is my story, right? And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And it's actually a very long rod. As it turns out, the city lies four square. It's length, the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. It's a cube. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Here's what he's saying. A stadia is roughly 607 feet. So the city describes is at least 1,400 miles square. That's roughly the area of India the subcontinent of India, one city. And it's not just the square area because it says it's just as high as it is wide and long. It's a cube, this one city. Today, the highest building in the world is in Dubai. They're building a, a taller one 
told, in Saudi Arabia. But currently, it's in Dubai, and it's 163 stories high. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? This city, being framed by the great architect, is 600,000 stories high. 600,000 stories high in this city that God is building. It's a God-engineered marvel that dwarfs all cities and present creations by mankind in every way possible. It makes our most beautiful of cities look like slums. It's sheer size. It's just staggering, right? Because wouldn't God do something like that? The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So love that description. There's no plaster or concrete or rebar used. They're precious jewels, except for the roads, where the road crew uses pure gold. Why not? When God is the investor and the builder, the architect, and the one in charge. Wouldn't it look like this, his city, his masterpiece of architecture, declaring the beautiful creativity and the covenant nature of God. And the gates, they're made of single pearls, which means it's giant oyster, apparently. <laughs> and uh, St. Peter doesn't you know, show up in the pages here, but it's better than that, right? That's, that's what we're told. Why a pearl? I, have, I don't really know, but I'll take a guess. Pearls speak of beauty out of pain. You're aware, right, uh, that the pearl is formed. Tiny grain gets into that oyster, and um, the oyster, as a result of the, the pain and the irritant, creates this soft this, um, substance, this beautiful substance around it that hardens and starts to glow in its beauty. Think about how this describes the redeemed that come through the pain of Jesus that he was the one who came looking for a pearl of great price, that he was the one that suffered and made something beautiful. Us. The irritant. <laughs> and yet he made something beautiful. He's, I think it's another portion of the plan of God, memorializing what God did. So every time you walk through the gates, you think, oh yeah, that's the beauty of God at work. And he sold Lord Jesus did. He gave everything for that. The redeemed can't forget the shame and pain of the cross and the price of our entry. In verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No more church buildings or temples. Why? We don't need one. Right? God's present right there. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gets its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. 
and they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who were written in the Lamb's book of life. It's telling us that we'll live in this close intimacy with the Lord God, and there will never be any threats. We won't have to worry if we're safe from the latest terrorist attack or the latest crime, because this is a place for the redeemed, a place where God rules and reigns and protects and cares, and there's doors are wide open. The gates aren't shut. They're inviting and welcoming. And every citizen of this city has one thing in common, one thing. It wasn't their socioeconomic background or their culture or their race, none of that. It's that God wrote for deep's name in the book of life. And he didn't do it because Pradeep paid off God <laughs> or he earned it, right? Pia, you know that, that occasionally Pradeep sins. He did it because Pradeep placed his faith in Jesus, right? That, that you placed your faith in Christ. That's the only, only thing. How you get in. And how sweet is that? Because we all know, man, we didn't deserve this. There's nothing we, you know, rent's free, but God paid the price. And I, I can go in because God paid for me. And so I live for eternity in great appreciation, stunning appreciation for what God has in store for us. And I didn't earn my citizenship, but it was a free gift. So you think of a better place to call home? This morning, in view of what our God did, I'd like you to call you home. I'm not going to like kill you or anything. I'm, I want to call you to, um, to where you belong, what your future is, right? To have this in the forefront of your thought that God has called his children. When, when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, this is what he's talking about. And it's beyond expectation, beyond what you can think about and dream about. But God is calling you to this place. And if you're a person who has placed your confidence in Christ and you've sought his forgiveness and you've said, God, I want to be yours, then you have your name already written down. St. Peter's not going to check it out or ask you to do any tricks. God says, no, this is home. Come. And for those of you who are just wondering, I don't, well, I don't know, Ron. I'm just not sure. I don't have confidence. I, I, don't, I don't really know. Listen to the, what's true and trustworthy. This is, this is it. That if you say, yeah, there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. I have wronged him. I, I've sinned. I've broken promises. I, I don't deserve it. And you place your confidence in Jesus and what he's done for you, his free gift of grace, his, his love for you. And you don't place your confidence in your own stuff, but in him and what he's done on the cross in time and space and history. And if you just have told him that and confessed it and said, God, I need you. I want relationship with you. I want to follow you and give you my life. If you've done that, and just even as you do it, he's writing your name down. You can have sure confidence in that and live in that confidence. Would you pray with me, please? Father, um, for those of us who have trusted you 
help us just pause on this great truth that what you have in store for us is staggeringly great, full of beauty and intimacy with you and things that you're just hinting about here that are just so good. And for anybody here that, that came this morning, I pray that if they're without relationship or without confidence that, that you have called them here, that this is their home, that they're your child, would you just speak just deeply into their heart right now? and they have the courage and uh, the right self-assessment just to know that they've wronged you, but that you are full of grace and forgiveness. If that's you, just, just speak out to, to the Lord right now just to ask him, God, would you forgive me? I want to be your child. I, I just want to follow you. Please help me. God says when you do that, you can have sure confidence he will save you and he'll write your name down and that's our great aspiration our great hope for you that you would leave with that confidence to just have that honest conversation with God Father for all of us I pray that you would give us just a great assurance that you love us and you're calling us to a far better place and a thankful heart for it I pray these things in the name of Jesus our Lord and Savior all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.